Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico. Got a great show for you tonight. I've got uh, two great gentlemen coming up here uh, very shortly on the Coach's Corner panel uh, discussion tonight, and I'll introduce them in just here in a second. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be having uh, LBJ uh, teach professional Rebecca Heinmert, who's been on the show um, here in actually a few months ago. She was on the show uh, with uh, Jamie Leno Zimron, who, uh, who's been on the show a number of times, both as a panelist guest and also as a featured guest. And Rebecca's going to be talking about uh, how she got involved in golf and then also about a re- another retreat that they're going to be doing here uh, towards the end of this month. So we'll talk a little bit about that uh, when she comes on. And then I'm also going to recap uh, a contest that I launched last week uh, with none other than Byron Casper, son of legendary Billy Casper, uh, a great opportunity for those of you that might be interested in, in a weekend away, a couple's weekend away, uh, which includes uh, two nights uh, bed and breakfast and uh, a few rounds of golf for the two of you as well. Uh, throwing a nice, nice package, rounding it up, of course, with a copy of uh, Billy Casper's last book, uh, The Big Three and Me. And I've read that book. Uh, Billy, um, before he passed away, had actually sent me an autographed copy of that book. And I've read it uh, from front to back and back to front. It's a great read. So uh, it's a great uh, addition to the prize. Um, just to remind everybody, of course, we are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central. That's 7 to 9 for those of you on the Eastern uh, Standard Time and 4 to 6 for those of you out uh, the Pacific Way uh, are the times that uh, the broadcast is live. If you want to find the broadcast, go to blogtalkradio.com and up in the search key, type in... Uh, Golf Talk Live, and that will take you to the main page. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live, and that will bring you to the main page. And of course, we are uh, live, as I said, from 6 to 8 Central. If for some reason you can't join us during the live broadcast, not to worry. Just visit that page, scroll down to the on demand section, and all of the shows, of course, are auto recorded, so you have an opportunity. Uh, to listen to them at your convenience or at your leisure. Uh, always would love to hear from you. Our, our guests, uh, of course, uh, call in live on, on the Thursday evening shows, but we would love to hear from you as well. If you have any questions or comments about the show, uh, you're welcome to call in. Uh, dial 646-716-4667, and you're welcome to join in the conversation. Uh, you can also email any questions or comments uh, about the program to me personally at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. That's ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. And of course, always update on social media on Facebook, go to golf talk live blog page. And, uh, the show is updated there as well as my own personal page. And, uh, you're welcome to leave comments or, or post there as well. Uh, or if you have questions about the show and also, uh, follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO and that's CEO in capital letters. Uh, thanks for all of the uh, recent followers there as well. I got two great guests, uh, as I said, joining me here on the coach's corner panel, and I'm going to bring them on here. Uh, first up is uh, John Hughes. He's been on here many, many times, both as a panelist and also as a guest. As a, he's a PJ Master Professional. 
and he's also the 2013 PG of America Horton Smith uh, recipient uh, of that award. And uh, he was also the vice president and secretary of the North Florida PJ section. And I believe there's been a change in that. And I want to double uh, check with him when he comes on here in a second. And then, of course, uh, joining the panel uh, for the first time is uh, Paul Castor. He's up in the New Jersey area. He's a golf coach. And he's also the director of instruction at the Forsgate uh, Country Club up in the New Jersey area. So, gentlemen, welcome to uh, Golf Talk Live's Coach's Corner. Hi, Ted. Thanks, Thanks Ted. for having me. Uh, you're, you're quite welcome, guys. Always uh, glad to have you. John, I just want to – the reason why I said that is I couldn't remember from the last time. Did you not say that there was a change, or, or you're still acting as the, uh, the uh, vice president and secretary of North Florida PJ section? Well, I'm now v- vice president. Charlie Reimer of Golf Channel is now our secretary. That's right. I knew there was a change. That's why I didn't want to read it out uh, as, as was uh, first up. And I, I, I couldn't remember what it was, and I meant to ask you before we went live, and I forgot. So um, – John, of course, as I mentioned, is the vice president of the North Florida PJ section. Um, guys, I wanted to talk about on the panel discussion tonight um, a little bit of a master's recap, if you will. Um, one of the things I want to do is I want to examine some of the areas which I feel a lot of our amateur golfers out there could benefit from. And it's not meant to – some of the, the uh, comments that I'm going to make are not meant to focus on any faults or anything that any you know, individual players may have made. Uh, but rather to be used as a learning tool for some of the golfers. So, so let's begin with that. And, and Paul, since you're uh, a newcomer to the panel discussion, I want to let you start off uh, the discussion tonight um, following up on this question. So, for example, Jordan Spieth, of course, uh, we all know who he is. He's a, a great young professional who won the Masters last year and unfortunately uh, didn't close it out this year. But he said something interesting after the third round that I thought was, was uh, I particularly found very interesting, and I'll explain to you why. And then I want you to chime in, Paul, with, with some comments. Um, he stated after his third round that he should have stuck with hitting his three-wood off the tee and that he felt that it caused a, a lot of unnecessary errors because he wasn't hitting his driver, obviously, that well. And you could see that, obviously, in his mind, he had made a mental error by not sticking with that plan um, and, and just sort of going uh, as he did. And it, ultimately, I'm sure it cost him some strokes, which, which may, may have cost him the tournament, ultimately. Uh, and if that's the case, what could our amateurs take away from, from this mistake? Well, I think, uh, you know, in, in, discuss, in telling us that, Jordan was basically saying that he had a game plan. Um, and, you know, starting the, a round of golf, especially a tournament round, uh, with, with a game plan is extremely important because – um, you're making that, that plan based on rational thought ahead of time, not how you feel in the moment when you're playing under pressure. Right. And things, things definitely change when you're um, under pressure. Um, and I think we saw that uh, during the tournament for him, unfortunately. Um, he probably made the decision to hit his three-wood because it put him in better positions on the golf course, maybe relative to the trouble, the hazards, the bunkers. Um, and he might have made that decision based on how he was actually hitting his driver for most of the week, um, right. which really wasn't wasn't that great, um, unfortunately. So I think you know he he deviated from something that probably made him feel pretty secure to doing something that was probably a little bit more risky, and that put a little that put more pressure on him. Yeah, and, and, and John, I just want you to add uh, to this, if you will, 
Um, you know, this is something that a lot of amateurs make as they, uh, as Paul just pointed out, they, they don't necessarily come in with a game plan and, you know, they may not be playing in the masters tournament or the U S open or, or any other, um, major tournament, but to them, it could be their club championship. It could be maybe a corporate event. Um, more often than not, they don't go in with a game plan. Um, how important is it to have a game plan regardless of what tournament you may be playing? And should you deviate from that game plan mid round? I, I totally agree with what Paul was saying, and the way I'll embellish that is great decisions are going to camouflage poor performances. What I mean by that is you've got to have a game plan coming in, and throughout the round, that plan, like any good business plan or any good personal plan, is going to have to bend and flex based on the situations that you're in. When Jordan's talking about, I should have hit my three wood. What he's basically saying is, you know what? My performance with my driver is not that good, but right. I can camouflage that by hitting three wood. I don't have to hit driver. Uh, it's all about being able to, while in the moment, understand how your plan can bend and flex, yet stay on the path that you're trying to take. And hitting more three woods for Jordan probably a great thing for most amateurs to understand that getting three wood if it puts you in play what are you really sacrificing can you sacrifice the 10 or 12 yards you may not be hitting as Mm. far as the driver per se in lieu of gaining hey i'm in play versus who knows where i am that's a great decision that will camouflage your poor performance if your swing's off but yet, here's a club that works. Why not do it? It's it's sort of a no-brainer. But because we get caught in the moment and caught in the emotion of the moment, sometimes we just forget what moment we're in and go with what we feel not necessarily is our gut, but what we feel that we need to do without actually surveying the situation and making a great decision based on the situation you're in right now. Right. And it's well all said. part of that game plan. Yeah, well said, both of you. Now, let me ask you, uh, you know, because both of you obviously um, have, have been teaching for, for a number of years and, and coaching and so forth. Um, is, is, is having a game plan part of your teaching philosophy, if you will, with your students? Um, you know, do you try to encourage them to have a game plan? Uh, you know, even if it's just, uh, again, playing with their with their you know, friendly foursome on the weekend or uh, maybe a corporate event, do you try to encourage them to, to put together a game plan before they head out? Um, is that something that you try to encourage them to do, uh, Paul and, and then John? Uh, without question. I, I actually think that um, the most common question I get or, or statement I guess I hear when somebody comes for a golf lesson for the first time is, I just wish I could be a little bit more consistent. Mm-hmm. And what people really don't realize is that they are, you know, if, if you put somebody on shot by shot or excuse me on, on flight scope, uh, I use flight scope and I also use shot by shot, which is a different thing, but um, you have somebody hit maybe 28 irons or 20, you know, five hybrids on shot by shot or on flight scope, excuse me, you'll see a very predictable pattern. Right. Um, you'll see, you know, a pretty repeating ball flight. It just might not be, exactly where that person wants to go. So right. they they may be aiming it at a flag and then hitting it, you know, 15 
10, 15 yards to the left of it. But if you, if you look at that pattern, it's extremely repeatable. It's just, they're not aiming their pattern. Right. Um, so that's, it's, that's one example of, of game planning. You know, if you know that you have a certain kind of ball flight, you don't play golf with the ball flight you wish you had. You play golf with the ball flight that you got. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. A lot of golfers play golf with the ball flight that they wish they had. And so they end up short of greens and um, in lots of trouble. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of the mistakes that golfers make are, are kind of ego-based. Um, so if you, if you set out to understand what you actually do and then you make a plan based on that, um, you're just going to play a lot better. Uh, and I think, you know, thinking ahead of time, when you have a clear head about what you're going to do during a tournament round, just, you know, it's very, very valuable. Um, and a tournament round can be different for different people. For me, right. it might be a qualifier for the state open. Um, but a tournament round might be, you know, an important match with a friend uh, to one of my students. Uh, so making sure that they plan ahead of time and decide on this hole, I'm going to hit, you know, for hybrid because it's going to prevent me from being able to even get the ball into that hazard that I always go into is going to save them a lot of trouble um, and, and help them preserve their momentum. Yeah. And, and well said, uh, Paul and, and John, you know, I, I, I think I pretty much know your, your answer as well, but, um, but if you want to, you know, certainly elaborate, you know, having a game plan as Paul indicated is, is important, but a lot of amateurs, obviously, as we know, don't come in um, with a game plan or as, as Paul just pointed out, um, you know, they play with, with the shots they wish they, they had and not with the shots they actually have. What do you try to do with your students to encourage them to, to come with a realistic game plan, but a game plan nonetheless? Paul, I couldn't agree more here. Everybody I always see is more consistent before I see them than when they leave me. I always tell them that. <laughs> yeah. and, it, they they sort of look at me bewildered. What do you mean? I came here to, to get more consistent, which opens the door to the question, what's your definition of consistency, which I right. ask everybody. And, and the definition is different for everybody. So it's based on that definition is how we come about the plan, which in turn hopefully will motivate this person. It's, it's geared around them, not necessarily a, a predepositioned type plan that you may or may not agree with. Uh, a great example: I just came back from the Arbor, from the RBC Heritage Program yesterday. I had a client up there with some friends, and he came to me about a month or so ago. I'd, I'd met him several months ago, but he came to me and said, "You know, I want to contribute. Last year I didn't contribute, and I want to contribute." So we we really delved into what contribute meant to him uh, playing best ball of the four plus your pro to him he wanted at least two holes to count mm-hmm. so the plan was just that how do you contribute and we just like Paul said we really researched over the course of a three week period because there wasn't a whole lot of change to be made in three weeks what it is that made him up as a golfer not only physically but mentally uh, and emotionally. So as the round went on, 
if things got a little askew, he could always go back to what this plan was to contribute. And that's exactly what happened about the 13th hole. Everybody sort of realized, hey, we're in this. Uh, and they were looking at scoreboards. And the 14th tee, if everybody knows what the 14th is at at Harbor Town, a lengthy par three to a peninsula green, everybody was clamming up. Everything got silent. Until that point, it was a pretty jovial foursome. Uh, that three holes, my player, who I was caddying for, just went off his plan. And by the middle of the 16th hole, still playable, actually middle of the 15th hole, I basically asked him, I said, do you remember what your plan was? And he said, yeah, to contribute. And, I, and one more question to follow it was, are you doing that? What are you doing over the three weeks that we prep for you to contribute that you've been able to contribute? And contribution to him not only was score, midway through the round we pointed out that even though his score didn't count, him jarring a par putt allowed two or three other people to go for a birdie putt, right. which enabled them to get the score. Uh, long story short, he literally turned around, stepping backwards, stepping back to his initial plan. How do I contribute? And that plan was made around him, not his playing partners. We had no clue who we were going to play pro-wise with, so you can't right. build a plan around that as well. It was based around him and his strengths, his abilities. He hmm. ends up birdieing or net birdieing the last three holes coming in. His team rides him. They missed a playoff by one shot come in tied T2. They had a fantastic time, but at the end of it, he literally came back and says, you know, I'm glad three weeks ago we made a plan, and the plan had yeah. nothing to do with scoring. It had everything to do with what I was capable of doing so I could do one thing and feel like I contributed. He right. more than contributed throughout the day, and that's you literally have to go about it as an amateur. It doesn't matter what your skill level is. What is it you're trying to do? really buckle down with your coach and figure out what you're capable of doing and set the goal. Uh, that's all we did. It was, it was a really neat experience, but very apropos to the discussion we had. Yeah. And, and, and that's a, that's a, an excellent point, uh, John, you know, having a game plan, I agree with both what both of you have said. I think it's important even for the amateurs to have a game plan, whether it's, it's playing in a, you know, a, a best ball situation or, you know, whether they're playing, as I said, for, for a club championship, having that game plan, whatever it may be, gives you a perspective throughout the round to focus on instead of focusing on all the other stuff, you know, instead of focusing on trouble and focusing on, you know, the negative aspects, you go in with a game plan and you focus on achieving that game plan. As, and as you said, John, it's not about the score. Uh, in his case, he wanted just to be able to contribute uh, to his, you know, to the round itself. And he obviously was able to do that uh, in spades. But uh, again, having that game plan, I, I agree with both uh, with both of you. Has said uh, is extremely important. Mm-hmm. All right, I want to I want to move on to the next uh, topic here. Uh, again, it's keeping with the Masters theme, uh, Paul, you kind of alluded a little bit to this um, somewhat. But uh, Jordan had, had, you know, again as he admittedly talked about uh, in some of his interview uh, that he was leaking a lot of his shots. Uh, to the right throughout his rounds. Um, one of the questions I always want to ask, and I think uh, you know the amateurs need to understand, this is another area as well that they need to really understand, is number one, um, talk about, Paul, I'm going to start with you, talk about um, 
whether or not a player should try to adjust mid-round uh, and work with what they, uh, or, or rather work with what they have at the moment and then correct it afterwards? And if so, why? Uh, I definitely think that for the most part, people can't adjust during the round, um, especially if it's a competition um, mm. because you just have so much going on. Uh, golf is a mental game. And when you're playing in a tournament um, that it changes things. I mean, we, we all kind of know that. So I don't, I just don't think that it's realistic to expect yourself to be able to make some kind of an adjustment or mechanical change while you're trying to perform, you know, out in the field, so to speak. I mean, if you think of a, of a pitcher throwing a baseball, um, if he's having a bad game, I, my guess is most pitchers aren't going to think about their mechanics while they're out there on the mound uh, right. trying to trying to throw strikes. Um, or, you know, so I think for the most part, you have to just change your strategy. Um, and if you wanted to hit driver, but your driver's leaking too much, you have to hit a golf club that you know is going to get the ball in play. Um, and ultimately, if you're hitting the ball into situations where you have no shot or where it's in hazards or, God forbid, OB, um, you, it just ruins the round. It, it ruins your prospects for success. So being able to drive the ball and advance it safely um, is just, you know, it's critical. Um, so I, I think, yeah, for most people – most people are going to start thinking about their golf swing. That's the normal human tendency Right. Uh, is that when you start to lose control, you try to become more precise um, and more controlling. Uh, and usually that causes, you know, the whole round to kind of, you know, go the wrong way. Right. Um, you know, John, just to add to that, you know, obviously the professionals are, are a little bit different breed. They can make some minor tweaks and adjustments. They've played long enough and they understand their swings well enough that a minor adjustment can be made. But in the cases Paul suggested, you know, even they will, you know, if it's a major issue, they might, you know, scale back. And, you know, if the driver's not serving them well, they may, um, as many players, you know, Tiger has done this to some degree. Freddie Couples has done this when his uh driver wasn't working he'd scale back to a three wood or even uh some cases they'll go to a now most of them don't hit long irons uh, anymore they might go to a hybrid but they'll scale back somewhat will be about the most adjustment you'll see but a lot of amateurs of course do the opposite as, as again as paul suggested where they'll try to get into swing mechanics and things like that how do we you know get it through their head that that's not the time and the place to do it it's to be done afterwards, um, you know, as the pros do after the round. What do they do during the round to avoid that scenario? I think for the average amateur, you, you, you both hit it right on the head. It's, it's afterwards. But during the round, I, I would argue that there's not too many golf professionals, touring professionals, people who play for zillions of dollars, who can literally make a mechanical change midway through the round. You, you've right. got to be one of the one-tenth of the top 1% to be able to do that. And it's got to be the right day and the right round and the right situation for that to happen. What touring pros do that an amateur can do is I'm going to call it make a, a geometric change, meaning you're hitting a fade. Why are you on the left-hand side of the box? 
You should right. be on the right for the right-hander. That's a geometric change. It's not, it's not influential to a swing change so much as it provides more geometric area for that particular ball flight to work. Uh, the next change is obviously the scale down. Love how you put that. I'm, I'm going to scale it down. The, yep. the similar way of describing that to the average amateur is when an infant learns to walk and they walk too fast, they fall over. They don't mm. get up and walk at the same speed. They scale the speed down, mainly yep. because of balance. And what the once the average amateur understands that their poor shots are due to poor balance, dynamic balance throughout the entire swing, all of a sudden the lights go on. But that doesn't mean it's a mechanical change. All that is is, you know what, I'm going too fast. I need to scale this down. And I go from driver to three-wood, three-wood to hybrid. Maybe instead of taking a full swing, I'm going to choke down and take a three-quarter swing because it keeps it in place. Those are right. mechanical changes. Those are decision-making changes based on what you're doing. And you can implement a geometric change very easily into that. It's not a Band-Aid. It's what's working at that particular time. If right. you're not putting effort into making the changes, then these are the only changes you can make. If you're not making the changes after the round, at the practice facility, these are the, these are, this is the tool set you're limited with. And once people understand what their tool set is, sometimes they can go out and actually make it work. They can actually make it happen. It's those that really are striving to say, you know what, I want a bigger tool set. I want that bigger red box to put in the back of the garage. You know what, you've got to go out and earn it, but you also have to know how to use those tools. And that's where the practice comes in. If you just want to go play, just stick with the geometric changes, stick with the decision-making as far as the correct clubs. It goes back to what I was saying before. Great decisions will camouflage poor performances. And if you make a geometric change, it's in theory a setup position. That mm. in turn adds more camouflage to that poor performance. Yeah, well well said guys. And 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 you know, that's so true. Um you know, one of the things that I think that a lot of amateurs get stuck in and and this causes for you know, multiple bad rounds is they try to make um you know, physical changes, um, not by adjusting, you know, what side of the tee box they're going to hit from, but there's, they get into their swing mechanics, they get into position and things like that, and a whole myriad, adjusting their grip and so forth. And uh, ultimately what ends up happening is they compound, it's like compounding interest. You know, if you, um, you know, start your round at, 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 with, a, with a modest interest and then suddenly it gets compounded, um, you know, you, you have uh, you have a lot of debt coming into the round, so to speak, and that's essentially the same principle here. Is and John, that's what you're suggesting is, is rather than um, you know making a lot of uh, mechanical changes which are not going to serve you well, um, you can make some geometrical changes that can, as you said, camouflage um, uh, you know a bad situation and and make it appear better than what it is and, and ultimately you're going to end up scoring better and having a better time and, and ultimately that's what we want is we want the golfers to have fun um, great answers guys I appreciate uh, the input there um, I, I'm going to have one more question here surrounding uh, our good friend Mr. Jordan Spieth and then uh, I have a few other questions as well um, 
Jordan, as we, we talked about very briefly here, um, obviously he was leading the Masters after 54 holes, um, but some, somewhere on Sunday, somewhere around the back nine, uh, things sort of began to, to sort of slip away. Uh, I think that's probably a fairly true statement. Um, what can a player do? Let's let's talk about that briefly, but what can a player do to handle themselves in a pressure situation? I think one of the things, and this is just my opinion, but I think one of the things that caused um, some of the problems with Jordan, I mean, obviously he's a phenomenal player. He's, he's a smart guy. He's a great ball striker, um, you know, great mental. But I, I think some of the things that we've talked about here earlier, um, you know, not making, uh, you know, sticking with a, a decision of changing uh, up a little bit in order to, to uh, save him those strokes, I think ultimately cost him the tournament. And so what can a player, what can the average player do to handle themselves a little better under a pressure situation? What are some things that they can do, uh, Paul? Um, two big things come to mind. I think that, uh, I definitely think that one of them, almost virtually no you know, amateur golfers, I think, think about while they're playing golf, uh, which is breathing. Um, I think our brains work better when we have plenty of oxygen in our blood. And if you can take a big deep breath when you're under pressure or when things are kind of not going the way you anticipated, um, then it, it'll change the way you feel and your anxiety level will go down. Um, and, you know, I think that that, that's something that, uh, I talk about with students a lot um, and it's, it's almost like completely unrelated to golf. Right. But it, mm-hmm. it makes a huge difference when you're playing. Uh, if you can take four or five good deep breaths and let that air out really slowly, um, you're going to feel a lot better. And if you can continue to do that, your brain, you'll actually be able to think um, and, and kind of make good decisions. Um, I think the second thing is that you have to be able to get yourself out of, thinking about the outcome and more into the process of what you're doing. Um, The shot that you have to play right there in front of you, right then, you know, if it's an eight iron into a left to right breeze, um, you know, then that's the shot that you have to play and you just have to stay focused on that. Usually. And I, I mean, it's hard to imagine that, that Jordan wasn't thinking about being the youngest two, you know, back to back winner of the masters in history. Sure. It's really, it's really hard to imagine that that, you know, it had to have affected him and it's natural that it did, but you have to try to stay present. Um, and that's my experience. I, I still, I play tournament golf. Um, and, uh, you know, you can find a, a pretty good state of mind to play in and some might call it flow. If you kind of focus on those two things, I think, uh, you're not always going to find it, but your chances are better. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, John, what about you? I mean, you know, I, I don't want to suggest, and, and I'm certainly not suggesting that, um, you know, that Jordan choked or anything during that round, but it was very evident um, through those last several holes, especially when he hit Amen corner. Um, there was just a, a definite disconnection between um, his thought process and, and the results he was getting. In fact, there was a, at several times throughout the round and understandably so there was, there was, you know, a series of agitation, um, you know, that was noticeable. And I think, you know, many of the amateurs fall into the same trap. So, you know, just sort of picking up from where Paul left off, um, you know, amateurs, and, and, and by the way, Paul, that was some, some great uh, answers. Uh, I, I agree, you know, breathing, 
um, you know, uh, developing a, a sound breathing technique is extremely important. And I think sort of staying in the moment as well, um, focusing on the shot at hand and not letting your, your mind sort of drift elsewhere are extremely uh, two important factors. But John, what are some other things that amateurs need to sort of wrap their minds around that can help them through a pressure situation? I got to start with Paul's story. The breathing, the, the medical and biomechanical science is there to suggest, or not even suggest, but to prove that the more you oxygenate your brain and your blood, the slower things go. Uh, and under any pressure situation, Jordan Spieth or the club championship, you're going to speed up. And the breathing actually helps you get back into that flow that Paul was talking about to stay in the moment so you're not racing ahead in your mind or falling backwards into maybe a rut that you're in that you're trying to get out of, yet you keep thinking about it, you're just digging the the hole deeper. Uh, The other thing that I think we can learn from Jordan was, was he really prepared for being that repeat champion? My my suggestion would be that he he probably prepared very, very well to play well and to win. But it came I'm gonna I'm gonna say not necessarily too easy or too soon, so much as it wasn't paced. Uh right. he he basically shot all his shots in the first uh sixty three holes. And with nine remaining, there was still more golf to play. He was probably spent. Had he, did he prepare to actually be there? I'm going to tell you the pros do. They, they relish those situations. All great players do. Paul is a tournament player, can, can agree with that wholeheartedly. You want Absolutely. to be in that moment. But are you preparing to be in that moment. And I think that's what amateurs don't do. They sort of fall into that situation accidentally. And mm-hmm. it's cool and really good if you're falling into it accidentally because you're really not aware of what's going on. But as soon as you become aware, all of a sudden the tension starts, the, the gripping the club hard, milking it, uh, the shoulders getting up to the ears, you thinking too fast, not rationally. It occurs because now all of a sudden it becomes a very conscious effort to understand and try to maintain that position. And I think when you look at Jordan, he probably felt that after the three straight birdies. Maybe he got a little speculative. Maybe he got a little bit out of the moment with a four, was it a three or four shot lead? Who would? Yeah. Uh, especially with scoreboards everywhere you turn. The real key is keeping in that moment, but you have to practice it. And most amateurs have no clue how to practice that. Grabbing a great coach like Paul or myself or Ted or anybody that's on the program, that's what we do. We we train people to relish that moment uh, and, and really savor it. But you have to be prepared for it. And the ironic thing is you don't even know you're in it until you're in it. There's nothing that's going to prepare you for the red flag that says, hey, Paul, you're in the moment. It just doesn't happen that way. You've got to prepare for that accidental slip in into that moment. So when you're there, nothing goes untouched, but yet everything runs smooth as silk. 
Right. Well, well said, guys. You know, something I just want to add uh, here on on Tuesday mornings, um, uh, John, as you you may be aware, Paul. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. I also um, host another show in the mornings uh, called The Women of Golf, and that's co-hosting with uh, LPGA professional Cindy Miller. And uh, we've had a number of, of great young up-and-comers on the Symmetra Tour, of course, uh, uh, leading into the uh, LPGA Tour. And a, a number of them have, have made this, this statement, and I, I think this is something that uh, could sort of fall into this category for a lot of the amateurs out there. And I'm not sure whether both of you incorporate this in your teaching or not, but what they tend to do, and the, these are the players, these are young ladies that go out and, and battle it out with other uh, golf professionals week in, week out on tour. And what they do is they break their 18-hole uh, round down into many rounds of three holes at a time. And the reason they do that is it, it's less overwhelming, number one, but it also they play three holes at a time as they go around the course. And they do that actually even in competition. And it, it was interesting that, that you know, they had said that because, you know, when you really think about that, if you're just playing three holes and you're not really playing 18 and then you string those three holes, uh, you know, and the next three holes and so on together but as sort of a mini tournament within the tournament, uh, again, it's number one, it's l- a lot less daunting, but you're focusing on a much smaller objective than you are overall and you're not likely to focus on the overall score as much either and, I'm not sure whether this is something that you guys have sort of um, put into perspective with your teaching or not, um, or Paul, again, being a, a tournament player yourself, whether you've sort of adopted that philosophy. Uh, what do you think of that? I think it's a good idea. I've done six holes before. Um, sure. But I, I think it's, you know, when I play, when I play my best golf, uh, I'm really trying, I'm not thinking about, my the end result as much as possible i'm trying to just kind of you know play the shot that i'm hitting um you know make a putt move on and probably like vaguely aware where i am but sometimes don't really even know what my score is to be honest and it's the more i'm able to do that the better i play um and so i think if you have there are some people who just who can't do that and i get it completely um and and in that case, I think definitely breaking the, the course down into smaller chunks, um, so that you know if you had a bad if you had a, a bad three hole stretch, you can kind of say, well, you know that round's over, right? Um, you know I'm I'm moving on to the next one, and and the one after that, and those are the ones that matter now because that's all gone behind me. Um, I I think that that would be you know maybe breaking it down into smaller chunks like that could be very useful. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's why, from from what uh, our discussions were on the on the show, um, really was the purpose of them doing that was to be able to to you know in a sense micromanage their round um, by doing that. And obviously, it's been effective. And I'm not saying it's going to work for everybody, but um, I, I found it a very interesting approach uh, to playing um, uh, you know golf in that in that uh, in that facet. Um, I, I want to move on um, to uh, to the next question here. Um, as we all know from, from watching the Masters this weekend, it was unlike uh, really many of the past Masters in the sense that wind became a huge factor for a lot of the players. Um, you know, Sunday sort of laid down a little bit, but uh, earlier in the rounds, Thursday, Friday, and, and particularly Saturday, uh, we had certainly some very windy conditions, which is not normal for, for Augusta National. Um, 
Paul, uh, John, I'm going to let you start uh, with this since I, I, I let uh, Paul add into the, to the last mix. Um, how, do you, how does the amateurs adjust given the di- difficulty, of, especially of Augusta greens like that when you've got some fast greens out there and now all of a sudden you throw the wind in, in there? How do players adjust for the difficulty and what can, uh, what can they do to, to, uh, to offset sort of these windy conditions? We had similar windy conditions yesterday with with four differently skilled amateurs, and obviously the more skilled player is going to try to flight the ball a little bit lower, uh, try to take a little bit more conservative route, but they also don't swing as hard. Uh, there, there's a great phrase that Nicholas is is said to have coined: "When when it's breezy, I swing easy." There is absolute scientific evidence i'm a flight scope user myself that when you when you swing a little bit easier and don't swing so hard it creates less spin on the ball which in effect from an initial trajectory standpoint of view creates more of a rifling effect those first six to eight feet are crucial to not only create vertical launch but the the spin ratio is to keep it under the wind most amateurs swing really, really hard. And I saw that yesterday when the wind came up, everybody started swinging hard. The recommendation I made to my player, it got through the group, was let's just take another golf club. Why swing hard? Let's just take another golf club. And in certain cases, like in a match play with your with your buddies, if you're given a stroke on a hole, just happens to be that handicap hole, you can afford to take more club, swing easier, come up short, and rely on your short game to get you in the hole. You've got that extra shot to play with, per se, in a match kind of situation. Uh, It's different. It's a little bit outside the box for most people, but what what they're thinking intuitionally is, man, I got to kill it. The wind's going to knock it down. I watched our professional have his shots knocked down with a wind behind his back several yeah. different times and just knocked it right down. And a lot of the amateurs don't understand that with the wind. Not only can it knock it down when you're hitting into it, it can knock it down when you're hitting downwind if you're right. hitting the ball incorrectly. Uh, what it all boils down to is let's make a good decision prior making the swing so you can make the same swing regardless of what the wind's doing factor that into your decision making for instance if you've got 145 yards to the hole and that's normally your eight iron yet you've got a 15 to 20 mile an hour prevailing it's not playing 145 it's probably playing 165 it's okay to check the ego at the door take the six iron out just make a nice smooth swing if you're over the green, then so be it. But chances are you're going you're gonna to hit it pin high simply because you made a great decision. The minute you start trying to overspin, overhit, you fall out of balance, spin ratios get up, you're, you're dead in the water. <clears throat> yeah, and that, that's a great point. You know, uh, Paul, some of the other things, too, that I think a lot of amateurs don't uh, understand, and, and maybe you can touch on a little bit of this as well, dealing with the wind um you know often you'll hear some of the commentators will talk about you know on the putting surface you know maybe widening their stance a little bit some of the players in order to give them a, a more stable base um same applies with the full swing as well um you know normally if your your feet are shoulder width apart 
in windier conditions, you may want to widen that, especially with the driver. You want to widen them a little bit even more um, depending on how you play, but particularly in windy conditions to give yourself a, a, a more stable base. What are some other adjustments maybe uh, players could, could make um, to help uh, fight some of the wind? Um, I love playing in the wind. I grew up in Chicago uh, on a great little public golf course that was right on Lake Michigan. And I had, it was like a survival skill. Um, you, if you didn't know how to play the ball low and, and play golf that way, you just weren't going to score. So I think like John said, you know, um, a lot of people put the ball back in their stance to knock it down. And because of the swing direction and kind of, uh, plane you know, aspects of uh, some of the stuff that we know from teaching with radar, like flight scope is if you do that, you're, you're prone to really hook it um, and mm-hmm. lose control of the golf ball. Um, so, you, you know, leaving the ball kind of in its normal position in your stance and just taking a little bit of extra club, like John said, is, is really important. Sometimes two or three extra clubs um, and just, you know, taking the spin off the golf ball like that. Um wow. But definitely, you know, trying to keep yourself stable, making making sure that you're making balanced, smooth, easy golf swings, um, because you're more likely to lose your balance in the wind. Mo- a lot of people are more likely to just kind of swing harder because they feel like they're fighting the conditions. Right. Um, you know, and you're a lot better off if you can kind of just tone it down, maintain your balance, make sure that you strike the ball in the middle of the club face, um, and and flight it down with two, maybe three, sometimes you know extra golf clubs. Um, aiming at more conservative targets is also, I think, really important um, because you just don't know a gust can come up and blow your ball sideways, um, and you're just not going to hit the ball as precisely as you do when you don't have to stand a little bit wider um, and make a you know a shorter golf swing and you might be wearing an extra sweater or something, you right. know, and, and suddenly your golf swing just feels different. So, um, you know, I think the average tour player hits a sand wedge, uh, 17 feet from the hole. So if, if you look at that, that's six yards on either side of your target. Um, most of us don't really think of it that way, but we're playing, we're basically playing a window. We're not, we're not hoping for the ideal shot. We're kind of, going to aim that window and on a windy day that window is going to get bigger right exactly so you have you have to aim it aim window at a more you know forgiving uh piece of land so that you can get your ball on the green which is really critical uh for good scoring right and i think the other thing too to add uh, guys is is you know uh, paul as you had indicated earlier you know if a player's pattern is um, you know, maybe leaking a little bit uh, from left to right uh, or even right to left or, or a little bit uh, falling a little bit short, you know, you need to be able to make adjustments even more so in windy conditions. So you need to factor these things in with whatever you've, you've taken to the golf course that particular day, whatever, you know, game you're playing with, you need to factor that in uh, more so, I think, in windy conditions um, because it's going to play, you know, certainly play havoc as we saw um, this past weekend, uh, I want to. Uh, I had a few more questions here, but I'm going to sort of wrap them up together here, just because we're we're getting close to our time. Um, we all saw, you know, Bernhard Langer, Tom Watson, and and uh, and others um, who are are what I would classify as some of our more seasoned veterans of the game. 
um, you know, still playing in the Masters. But uh, obviously, um, you know, as Tom Watson felt uh, in his uh, comments after the, the rounds, that he just didn't feel he had the game in him to, to compete against some of the young guns. Um, is there, does there come a point when experience no longer gives them enough of an advantage to be competitive with some of the younger players coming up? And, uh, you know, I, I certainly don't want to suggest that Tom or, or Bernhard or, or even Ernie Els would be classified as an underdog in the tournament. But, um, John, I'm going to start with you, and then, Paul, uh, I want you to chime in as well. Um, when you're dealing with some of the, the older players, what do they need, or is there anything that they can do to, to remain competitive against some of these younger players? Is their experience enough? Are there other things they may have to factor in uh, in order to be able to be competitive against uh, some of the current guys coming up? Bernhard Longer was impressive, period. Right. I, I've, I've seen him play. I've, I've personally seen him play. Uh, was he 56, I think they said, 56, yeah. 58? He's in impeccable fitness shape. He he just is, and that that's why he was there in contention Sunday. Uh, the the length of the golf course compared to when he won his green jackets different. Speed of the green right. different. Uh, shaping of shots slightly different. But bottom line is he's older. He he is what almost thirty years older than the competitors out there that were in in the hunt. Jordan Spieth especially, uh, there, there's only but so much you can do physically to keep up with everybody. Yeah. You play your game, you play your plan, as we had talked about it earlier in the show this evening. Mm-hmm. But at some point, it was just the conditions as well as probably the moment that Bernhard wasn't necessarily prepared for. I don't you know, when you're 56, 58 years old, you've got a couple of green jackets under your belt and you go because you've been invited. Uh, you're, you're going with the, with the idea that, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to represent myself. Well, I'm not going to embarrass myself. I forget what pro said this in their news conference. They said, am I surprised that he's up there? No, he wins almost every year, every week on the champions tour. That's how well he prepares. And that's why we saw him there. So, again, it goes back to this preparation kind of thing. Tom Watson, I think what he, he's 60-something. When, right. you, when you look at his drive off of 18, his, his final hole, and where it ended up in comparison to his playing partners or in comparison to other places or other people throughout the rounds, that in itself is indicative of not necessarily a skill level. You, you've heard Arnold Palmer and Nicholas and everybody sure. say, well, you know, my skills start diminishing at a certain age. That certain age has grown into the 60s, and Mr. Watson's a fantastic example of that. But there just comes a time where those skills, no matter how hard you work on them, father time catches up with you. And the way he did it was classy. He's a classy individual. He, he did it the right way and stepped out versus the Masters Tournament Committee sort of saying, yeah, you got a lifetime invitation, but we're withdrawing it from you. See you at the Champions Dinner Tuesday night. Uh, right. And they've had to do that to some people in the past because they were shooting embarrassing scores. Uh, it's okay. I think if the average amateur looks at this and says, you know, even the best players in the world reach a point, it's not that their skills diminish, 
they plateau and they try to ride that plateau out into the sunset as long as they can. Sure. But at some point, do you hang it up? Professionally, yes. From a hobby, from a, a daily activity standpoint of view, why do you have to hang it up? It, it, you can just keep playing this until you drop dead if you want it. It's just a matter of keeping it realistic with your expectations, how you prepare, and, and who you're playing with. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think Nicholas really said it best, you know, when his time came is that, you know, as long as he was not able to be competitive in in his mind, the way he felt he should be, he didn't want to be out there um, against some of the, the up and comers and that. And I, and I agree with that. And it was for the very same reasons, as you suggested. Um, Paul, let me ask you just from a slightly different perspective. Um, you know, I, I think one of the other things does does experience sometimes with some of these older players work as a disadvantage in the sense that some of the younger players coming up, there's a certain naiveness. They're going to go for things. They're going to be much more aggressive because they don't have sort of that same experience under their belt. I mean, they're certainly top-notch players. They're great players. They know how to hit the ball and move it around, but they haven't had the years of experience where maybe an older player like Tom Watson, uh, not necessarily Bernhard, but some of the others out there, they know what their limitations are and maybe they're going to scale back a little bit because they know they don't have the ability uh, to pull off certain shots that they once did. Um, Whereas maybe a younger player is going to be more aggressive out there. Does that become a factor um, between the two, between the younger and some of the older season players? Yeah, sure. I think, I think a lot of it has to do actually with the conditions and how the golf course is playing. I mean, if the course is playing soft, and there isn't a lot of wind, um, you know, obviously that plays into the hands of younger, more aggressive players. And the competition on, on the PGA Tour is so uh, strong that uh, you really do have to take some chances to win out there. Um, and and I think when you, you know, if you combine those two things, younger players are probably more likely to take those risks, whereas older players are more likely to be kind of the high percentage game planners, uh, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, So if you have tough conditions, but maybe the course is playing faster and, and, you know, they can get their tee ball out there far enough and then play smart golf, um, you know, difficult conditions probably play more, you know, or give those players a chance, the older players who, who play, you know, smarter golf, so to speak. Um, Not that the young guys don't, but, you know, there's, like you said, there's a different level of kind of aggression. Um, that's, I guess that would, I think, you know, be the difference. Yeah, and, and I think the experience factor comes in, as you were suggesting, I think with the older players, they know they've been in these situations multiple times uh, more than, than some of the younger players coming up, and they're able to adjust accordingly, maybe at a quicker pace. But as John suggested, there comes a point in time when all the experience in the world um, is, is sort of swept aside as, as Father Time catches up with us all. And, uh, you know, it's certainly catching up with me pretty quick, so I, I, I can relate in that standpoint. But um, great, great discussion, guys. I appreciate that. And, and you know, one of the things that I, I really want to do with this year is, you know, I don't want to get into sort of the same routine of, of you know, fixing some of the same problems, uh, you know, in the amateur's golf swings. You know, we hear all the same questions, you know, how do you fix my slice and how do you do that? Uh, I want to really start getting into other areas 
um, to allow us to be able to help some of the amateurs out there because I think there has been a level of fl- frustration. Um, John, I know you've been on the program a number of times that, that I've tried to articulate that there has been a level of frustration. You know, handicaps are still kind of plateaued. Uh, people are still sort of shooting the same uh, handicap, if you will, that they have been for a number of years, and they're not able to, to get to that next level. And I think it's because they're trying to, you know, find that magic potion, if you will, that really doesn't exist. You know, a lot of hard work, John, as you talked about, you have to get out there and be willing to put the time in. So, um, you know, I suggest that for those amateurs listening out there that want to improve their game, uh, there's two great guys on the show tonight. If you're in their area, uh, I suggest you reach out. And, Paul, I'm going to let you very quickly before we close off, uh, let the folks know if they want to reach out to you, how they can go about doing that. And then, John, I'll let you uh, close out. Uh, Ted, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. and uh, look forward to talking to you again later on this, this season. Um, I'm, at, uh, I'm the director of instruction at Forsgate Country Club. We're located in Monroe Township, uh, New Jersey. And my website uh, is www.paulcastergolf.com. Um, you can also go to the club's website, which is uh, www.forsgatecc.com. Um, and uh, and reach me either way, and um, definitely uh, into finding alternative ways to help people lower their scores. Uh, I'm actually teaching a, a course this year, starting this year, called Lowest Score Wins. It's uh, based on a great book that was written by two good friends of mine, uh, Dave Wezik and Eric Barzeski, um, mm-hmm. and it's all about basically game planning and, and lowering your scores without really doing anything to your golf swing. Yeah, Dave, David's actually been on the show before. I'm very familiar with him. Um, well, when you come when you come back on, Paul, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that um, and what you're doing there. And, and thank you very much for for joining us uh, on the Coach's Corner panel. I uh, appreciate your thought and and uh, your professionalism and your input uh, for for the audience. Uh, and John, uh, I, I I know uh, you've got lots of great uh, information out there to help some of the amateurs. Where can they get uh, in touch with you? Well, they can find me similar to Paul, just my name, johnhughesgolf.com. I'm in Orlando, Florida. I do do some traveling for my clients, as alluded to earlier. Paul, really great comments tonight. It was a pleasure being on the show with you. If there's anything I can ever do for you from down here, please let me know. And, again, Ted, thanks. Uh, always an honor to be on, on board with you and, and do the coach's corner. The The thing I'd like everybody to sort of think about is, we really talked about things outside the box, non-mechanical. We, we threw some right. scientific things in there every once in a while. But what it all boils down to is playing within yourself. Uh, there were, Early in my career, someone told me that I needed to manage the course. I needed to learn course management. It wasn't until I started playing really well that I realized it was self-management. And if you really thought about a theme for this evening was – how can the average amateur self-manage themselves better with the current skills they have? And I think they've right. got a wonderful education this evening. Think outside the box that way, but always remember who you are as a person, what you're capable of skill and physically, and as well as what your emotions are and what makes you tick. And so long as you stay within yourself and do that, you don't have to, as much as you do have to work hard, you can reduce how hard you work and work smarter 
by literally making better decisions based on who you are on the golf course. And I think it's a great way of summing up the evening. And, again, it's John, John at John Hughes Golf for email. Phone number is on my website. If there's anything I can ever do for anybody, as I always tell everybody, please reach out. Let me know. Well, gentlemen, um, thank you for, for coming on the Coach's Corner panel tonight on Golf Talk Live. It's always a pleasure. I always get something out of the discussions as well. It helps me um, to advance what I do, and I enjoy these uh, panel discussions, and I enjoy having the guests um, on the program. And, and as I mentioned to both of you earlier, um, take a look at your schedules, and you know, as we progress through the season, let me know um, what are some prospective dates that you can come back on uh, as, a, as a regular guest. I'd love to have you guys on here, and we'll get into some more discussion and see if we can help some, some others out there uh, improve their game. But uh, in, on that note, gentlemen, um, thank you very much. Have a great evening. Uh, have a great weekend coming up, and I look forward to having you guys back on the panel and, and other future shows. So uh, thank you guys, and have a great evening. Thanks so much, Ted. John, thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Ted. Have a great evening. All right, thanks, guys. Take care. Okay, that was uh, my special guests, Paul Castor and John Hughes, on the Court Coach's Corner panel uh, discussion tonight. Uh, I see that my uh, my uh, next guest, uh, Rebecca Heinmert, is uh, is ready. But let me just very quickly, uh, I want to do something before I bring her on here. Uh, after the Coach's Corner panel, I wanted to very quickly remind everybody. Uh, last week, as I said earlier in the program, uh, myself and my good friend, Mr. Byron Casper, of course, son of legendary Billy Casper, and I uh, announced a contest on the show. Uh, it's uh, called the Golf Talk Live Major Champion Couples Contest, and it's really geared around the major uh, tournaments, the four major tournaments, the Masters, U.S. Open, of course, the British Open or Open Championship, this is often referred to, and the PGA Championship. And here's how that essentially how the contest works. Um, I've set up a, a separate email account, uh, golftalklivecontest at gmail.com. Um, obviously, the Masters has passed, so that one is now uh, out of the way. But you have an opportunity to send me an email to golftalklivecontest at gmail.com with who you think will win uh, the upcoming major championship. So uh, you have until the midnight, the Friday evening of each of the majors remaining. You can certainly su submit it now if you have an idea of uh, who's going to be in the field or who your favorite player is. Um, but you have up until midnight for each tournament to submit for that. Now, you can submit them all at once if you want, or I would suggest you do it individually. So that gives you uh, three chances. For those of you that submitted uh, prior to the Masters tournament, uh, you have actually four chances. And, and here is essentially how it works. Submit your... your um, uh, answer as far as who you think will win the tournaments uh, for the upcoming four major tournaments. And uh, if you're correct in ge guessing the, uh, the winner, uh, your name will be put into a hat, if you will. And then the week following the PGA, the Thursday following the PGA Championship uh, this year, uh, Byron will be joining me back on the show, and we're going to announce the winner. And here's what you're going to win. Uh, you're going to win essentially two nights in the uh, San Diego, California area, one night uh, bed and breakfast at the Hacienda Hotel in Old Town, San Diego. Uh, in addition, uh, while you're there, you're going to have uh, two uh, golf for two at the Salt Creek Golf Club. Uh, your second night is going to be, uh, again, at uh, bed and breakfast at the Palm Mountain Hotel and Spa and golf uh, for two at the Encina uh, Golf Club. So you have uh, essentially two rounds of golf and two uh, evenings uh, at uh, two different uh, great facilities in the San Diego area. Uh, in addition to that, you're going to be able to join Byron 
and have lunch at the Old Town Tequila Factory, uh, which he will be hosting. And of course, Byron is an international PJ member, instructor, and as I said, son of legendary uh, professional golfer Billy Casper. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, in addition to the lunch, I believe uh, Byron's going to set up a, a tour at the Tequila Factory as well, so that should be interesting and fun. Uh, you may want to do that after you play your rounds of golf, but uh, I'll leave that up to you guys and, and Byron. Um, but also included in the mix, uh, Byron is going to include a copy uh, of his father, Billy Casper's last book, The Big Three and Me, which I mentioned earlier, uh, Billy uh, Casper, um, prior to, uh, to him passing away. Uh, he was a guest on my show uh, actually two years ago and uh, sent me an autographed copy of the book, uh, The Big Three and Me, which talks about him. Uh, and how he competed against uh, players like Nicholas Palmer and, of course, Gary Player, uh, and, and others, of course. And uh, it was a great book, really talked about, had some interesting stories in there. So it's a, it's a great prize. Uh, value of the prize uh, is in excess of about $1,000. So uh, a couple of great nights at two uh, great facilities and some rounds of golf in there. Uh, lunch at the old Tequila Factory, uh, hosted by Byron, and, of course, uh, Billy Casper's last book, uh, The Big Three and Me. So great prize. Uh, all you have to do is enter in, send your emails, include all of the – I put the details on my Facebook page and on the Golf Talk Live Facebook page, but I'll uh, put them up there again throughout. But you have until the Friday evening of each of the upcoming major championships. As I said, the Masters has already passed by, so uh, too late to, to end into that one. But um, submit who you think will be the ultimate winner of each of the three remaining uh, major tournaments, the U.S. Open, the uh, British Open or Open Championship, as it's referred to, uh, and the PGA Championship. And for each submission, uh, you're one per tournament. Uh, by the way, guys, you can't do multiple. Um, you will have an opportunity to go into the uh, drawing for the Golf Talk Live Major Champion Couples Contest. And it is a couples contest. Uh, so, yes, you have to bring your spouse. Um, but... Uh, You'll get entered in there, and on the week following the PGA Championship, the Thursday following, uh, Byron and I will announce the winner of the contest uh, for the lucky couple that will get to uh, enjoy this prize. So uh, really appreciate want you to get involved in this. And the email address, again, is golftalklivecontest at gmail.com. That's where you submit your information. Uh, make sure you include your full name, your contact information address, and so forth, and, of course, your email address. And uh, good luck. And I hope you uh, hope uh, some lucky winner out there gets to enjoy uh, the great prize. Um, as I mentioned, my my special guest this evening is Rebecca Heinmert. Uh, she's been on the show before with Jamie uh, Leno Zimron and, and others, uh, talking about uh, uh, an upcoming uh, golf retreat. We're going to talk about that and some other things tonight. Um, but just to remind everybody, uh, Rebecca, of course, has been a member of the LPJ since 2004, uh, and is currently the LPJ Western Section Secretary. Uh, she played professionally uh, for three years on the Future, Futures Tour, excuse me, which is now, of course, referred to this, as the Symmetra Tour. Uh, Rebecca teaches at Oakmount Golf Course in Santa Rosa, California, and has played uh, golf, uh, this great game, for nearly 30 years, or actually uh, almost 30 years, and has taught literally hundreds of golfers and thousands of lessons. Uh, she is leading her third uh, golf retreat, as I just mentioned, uh, coming up Wednesday, or, sorry, for women on uh, April 30th. And for more information uh, after the show, you can go and visit her website at www.rebeccaheinmert.com. And we'll read that again before the show ends. Uh, her perspective on golf is a blend of technical skill as well as physical, mental, and emotional skill. And she uses the TrackMan launch monitor in her lessons and has uh, realized that it has given uh, a lot of improvement to her students at a very quick pace. So without any further hesitation, let me bring on my very special guest, uh, Rebecca Heinmert. Good evening, Rebecca. Well, good, 
Good evening, Ted. Thank you for having me. How are you? Well, uh, I'm doing very well. As I was just mentioning, you were on a little while back with with Jamie and and um, and uh, Renee Powell. Uh, I think the last time Renee wasn't able to join us, but uh, I think you were on there the time before when she was. And uh, you guys are gearing up. We're going to talk about that in just a little a uh, little bit about the retreat and uh, and all the particulars there and how how people can get involved in that. But um, what I wanted to do first is is talk about some things that that uh, you'd send some great points over that we get discussed tonight and and it is certainly a very exciting time in golf instruction um, a lot of uh, changes with technology and things out there um, what are some of the things that you really admire about what's happening in the golf instruction uh, compared to maybe when you were first sort of coming up in the ranks well i think uh, there's a lot of things that have changed Number one, um, I think, um, you know, I grew, sort of grew up when a video camera was sort of exotic. Um, right. And uh, filming the swing and looking at the swing on video was, was really, really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and these days we can just so easily do that with our smartphones. And it's, it's incredible um, how even just that can give so much awareness to a player. Um, it doesn't tell you the whole story, but uh, it sure can sort of put at least a, a visual to what's happening in the swing. And for a lot of people, that's sort of an aha uh, experience. And, right. Um, and I, I think that's a, that's a great start. <laughs> but there's a lot of other things that are, you know, happening now. Uh, video has been around for, for a while now, and, um, you know, we have a lot of exciting technologies out there uh, with launch monitors is, is one aspect of it. But we also have uh, body track and, you know, which is the pressure map, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, Swing Catalyst is another brand of that, uh, where you can measure the pressure um, of your feet uh, in the swing. Uh, and you can kind of see where um, not just your weight shift is going, but also, you know, how much pressure you're putting into your feet and, and it's really interesting and um, and fascinating uh, how much can change the swing and and and, and have an impact on your know, your swing path and your swing plane and how you how someone is hitting the ball. So, um, other things that are coming out is is 3D, which isn't new anymore either. Um, right. Uh, maybe not as user friendly as some of these other things that I just mentioned. Um, and then we also have, you know, some other systems in the work that are um, coming out soon. And um, But I think it's interesting to me how there seems to be this disconnect between what's happening in the um, commentating booth, I think, on the, right. on the Golf Channel or on TV, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in yeah. terms of golf instruction uh, versus what's happening in the real world, you know, um, and I'm, I'm sure you're part of some of that, those discussions mm-hmm. uh, online and on Facebook. And, um, right. And there seems to be just um, – it's just interesting to, to watch how um, there seems to be so much resistance to using this type of technology where uh, I think, you know, for all of the people that I've taught and, and uh, you know, and I just have a, a great example from yesterday. I had a, I had a gentleman. He was uh, – he's uh, – I didn't ask him, but he told me he was 73 years old. Wow. Uh, and he said, oh, I'm just slicing my driver. I, I don't understand, like, what's going on. I, I think I'm coming over it. Um, and, um, you know, we were on the range, and um, we're out there, and, you know, he hit his first drive, and it was, 
high and right and and I, I brought him over and I said, you know, your your club face, this this track man here, this launch runner just measured your club face and it was twenty three degrees open. Wow. <laughs> I think we I think we need to fix that. <laughs> and he was like, Wow, okay. <laughs> So, you know, well, in in a yeah, in, in about an hour, you know, he was hitting a little draw. Um and and he was just, you know, he was pretty happy. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to get into yeah, I want to get into a little bit more, but I want to back up just for a second. I want to get into more uh, I agree with some of the disconnect um that has been happening in the industry and we'll get a little bit more depth in that here in just a second, but I want to ask you and I think this sort of rolls into this. I think part of the reason, and, and I'll be uh, be perfectly honest, um, I, I think a lot of the technology out there is great. I think there's some some great stuff. There's some stuff that really I don't think is going to benefit the golfer in the long term. Um, but there is a lot of great stuff and many of the things that you've already mentioned. I think one of the problems that's happened in the industry that as a golf instructor, golf professional, we have to be careful of is that we don't overwhelm the students with all this technology. In other words, um, some of the technology is more for our use um, to, to sort of ascertain what's going on and diagnose, if you will, what's going on. And then some of it is, uh, is more designed to be shared. And I think one of the problems that's happened that's maybe caused some of this disconnect is I think some of them got so wrapped up in the technology and then sort of pushed that onto their students that it was overwhelming for the students because they don't have the same advantage. They don't get the same training and the same uh, technical, you know, information that we get. And I think this has caused a little bit of disconnect um, and, and certainly correct me if you, if you feel differently, but I think that's caused some people to sort of back away and shy away from some of the technology out there because it, it wasn't always used in the manner that it was meant to be used. And in retrospect, maybe confuse some of the students out there. So how do we find so let me wrap this into a question. How do we make sure that the great technology that's out there and available to us, that we manage it in such a way that we use it for, number one, what its true purpose is, and that we don't get too wrapped up and, and confuse and overwhelm our students? Right. And I, I absolutely agree with, with your point. I think, uh, yes, you can definitely use the technology to detriment. Uh, you can definitely have – Paralysis by analysis, you know, right. looking at too, too many different things at once. Um, you have to, you know, you're, uh, as an instructor, I look at myself as a curator. I have to decide, you know, what is the important part here. Um, you know, with a gentleman yesterday, you know, obviously his club place was a big deal. Um, right. And, and that was what needed to be. He didn't really need to know anything else. <laughs> he just needed to know that. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, so, um you know, for example, today I worked with a, with a mini tour player, and and all he really wanted to know was was how far his wedges um, at you know different levels, and so and again, you know, I have to discern there and say, okay, we're going to just look at your, you know, we're just going to look at that, and I'll look at the other things while you're not looking, <laughs> and I'll just tell you how far that ball went. <laughs> um, so yeah. there's definitely, you know, there's definitely. Um, you know, I, I'm a field player. Um, I think golf is a game of feel. Um, and I think a lot of people that, that say that shy away from the technology. Where I think that my perspective is that if you can confirm your feel, uh, whatever it is that you experience in your swing, whether it's, you know, open club face, closed club face, 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. If you can confirm what it is and you can, you know, you can make sure that that's actually what's happening, I think mm-hmm. you have so much more power. Sure. Um, and you can have so much more trust and confidence in your game. Uh, and that's my perspective on, on, on teaching these tools. Um, I think you can, you can increase your confidence level with it uh, if you use it correctly. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think some of the, the criticism comes from, and I'll give you an example, um, and it's certainly not everybody, but I think some people have, and I've certainly had them express this to, to me, not personally because of what I've done or anything, but um, just as a generalization, where you know a lot of times you know the instructors are looking at the monitors and they're not really looking at the player because they're caught up in the numbers and and this and I think that the players feel um, and I'm not necessarily talking tour players I'm talking just uh, you know students and things like that that they feel that there's a disconnect between the the teacher and, and themselves that the the teachers are more wrapped up in the technology and and rambling off numbers or or scenarios and not really looking at the students themselves. So I think that is part of it. Mm -hmm. But to go on to your point about the disconnect with with some of the commentators and that, um, I think that's part of it, what I just suggested. But I think the other thing, and and you know as well, I I certainly do am aware of what goes on in some of the social media. and, And one of the dangers that I see in social media with some of these golf discussions is they can get pretty heated. Um, and I'm sure you've witnessed a few yourself, you know, where, you know, somebody will come Absolutely. up and say, well, I like so-and-so. And, and I'll be quite honest. I try to stay out of some of the conversations because, um, you know, I'll, I'll observe them and I'll, I'll certainly pull, you know, sort of little tidbits out of those conversations. And I'll even talk about them on the show, but I won't get into the, to the meat potatoes of the discussion sometimes because, uh, and I'll be quite honest, and I think this is in any profession, you know, golf is certainly not immune to it. Um, there are some people in the profession that I think are less than professional um, in their conduct. I think that it's it's great to disagree, and I'm sure people come on the show and um, may disagree with, with some of the things that I say, and I have no problem in that. But I think there's a way of, of broaching that, and, and I can honestly say to this point, all of my guests have, have been very professional in that respect. But I think that sometimes in these social media, maybe because they're behind a computer and whatnot, they get very heated. It gets into name-calling, and it gets into an unprofessional tone. And even some of the commentators that we see on the Golf Channel, sometimes in their common, uh, you know, commentating, it, it's just not um, it, it serving the industry well, in my opinion, as well. Um, so what should we be doing when it comes to some of this technology and some of this uh, disconnect? How do we sort of get around this disconnect? What do we do to, to sort of change the, the mindset? Um, well, I, I think I do what I do. You know, I, you know, be the change. Um, and it, it's a lot about education. Um, it's a lot about um, not being afraid of the technology. Um, and I think that, I think it can be super, super helpful. Um, you can get make a change or make a correction in your swing or your game, uh, I think, so much faster when you have this type of feedback. You know, whenever you can train and have feedback, and I think this comes from my background as a professional player, um, if you can have and train with feedback, you are you're way ahead. You, you'll get way ahead um, knowing your yardages knowing your your patterns, you know, what happens mm-hmm. when you hit a bad shot? Like, what's your tendency? Like, what actually happens? <laughs> um, if I would have known that when I played, 
oh my goodness, that that would have been so great for me. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I I cannot tell you um, at the end of, you know, my playing days, uh, I was really frustrated because um, I wasn't hitting enough greens and I, I, I couldn't figure it out. Um, And I, I would have loved to have this type of technology um, to just get some certainty around that. Um, That would have been great. Let me ask you something though. I'm going to play a little bit devil's advocate here when I say this, Um, given the fact that, you know, during your earlier times when you were playing competitively in that, and if you go back to some of the, the earlier players, whether it be on the men's or the ladies' tours, that didn't have the advantage of the technology, but yet were highly successful uh, in their careers. You know, Nancy Lopez, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, mm-hmm. um, you know, even Annika Sorenstam. I mean, even in her earlier time, the technology hadn't quite caught up to, to where it is now. Um, if I was to present the argument, why were they able to be as successful um, to such a level, and yet we don't see that same kind of success today on an individual basis, despite all the advances in technology? And the other part of the question is, despite all this technology, and I agree it is good, um, handicaps still are sort of you know flatlining in that area. Why is that? Well, I think you also have to remember that courses are getting longer. Um, sure. Players are playing courses that are longer and longer and longer, and I think um, I'm not a huge fan of that uh, development. Um, I think it's um, especially for women. I think it's a complete detriment to women's game because if you look at the average woman, how far they hit the ball, and you take the average man, it there's no way that's 15-yard difference. So. Right. <laughs> uh, I think that is a huge factor um, in, you know, who's playing golf. and Because everybody wants to play golf and have some success with it. Um, I, I think that, you know, I've, I've taught with Trackman for two years, and it's amazing to me how quickly I can, I can get somebody to understand their ball flight, why the ball is going where it's going. Uh, the corrections that we're doing, it's not guesswork. Um, at least the the root cause of the program, you know, the problem is not the guesswork. Sometimes you have to try a different, different, you know, ways to kind of get around something. But at least we're not guessing at, okay, you know, what the club is doing and how you're coming into the golf ball. Um, that is huge. Uh, you can get something done very quickly. Um, right change the slides and, you know, and plus a lot of people want to, want to uh, say, Oh, are you, are you really sure? (laughs) Are you really (laughs) sure about this? (laughs) Right. And, you know, okay, well here, then you can just say, okay, well, here's the numbers, you know, this is the type of equipment that the best players in the world use. You know, you go to any range on the PGA tour or on the European tour and there's, there's trackmen everywhere. Um, yeah. There's a reason for that. Um, it's not that they're blind and looking at numbers all day long, but I think it's a, it's a it's to confirm what they already know and and making sure that their patterns are right there. And you know, I put a this this today I had a mini tour player and I put him on track and it's he he's good he's good, but he realized that you know he's competing with players who's using this type of this type of technology and he he's like I need to learn about this. 
And I'm sure if if you look back at, you know, Jack Nichols and Nancy Lopez, I'm sure they would have been all over it. Yeah, <laughs> um, well, I'm sure. Know. And <laughs> yeah, you know, you... I, I, from my Swedish background, I mean, I, you look at Annika or somebody like that, she would have been all over it too. There's no doubt in my mind. <laughs> um, yeah. So it... I, I think it's, you know, any every sport, you know, every sport the last 10, 20 years, I mean, it's gone – massively forward in terms of training and, and, and that's just the nature of, of everything. Everything is always improving uh, at that level. Uh, now, if I can help my 73-year-old hit a straight drive and put his ball in play and, and make him happy about playing golf and playing more golf, I mean, I think that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> it's so yeah, much I... fun to see somebody who's been oh, just hitting... I don't know, small little shots to the right um, into the weeds, um, hitting a ball that he's, like, smiling about. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, and that's true. Yeah, that's true, Rebecca. You know, I, I think that the idea, the purpose, really, uh, of what we're trying to do is is to bring some fun to playing this game. And, and it is a difficult game. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. But I think the more that we can help students and, and technology play. And, and, and I agree with you. I, you know, I, I've, I make no bones about it. I've said, you know, many, many times on the show, uh, I think the technology is great. I think it has to be put in the proper perspective and used under the right circumstances and not abused in the sense that, you know, people relying solely on the technology. I mean, there has to be other components involved, but I, I agree. And I think there are certain people in the industry that are maybe fearful um, maybe they're afraid of the technology. They don't understand it, and so are apprehensive. Um, I'm sure that's part of it, but uh, or are using it incorrectly and, and and relying too much on it and not really mm-hmm. you know adding the other components. And so I mean it, it's a balancing act. It's like everything. You have mm-hmm. to find balance, um, you know, in that uh, in that perspective. Now the other thing. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's uh, one other point there. I think it's really important, just like you're saying. You know, it's always about the connection with the student. Because if you don't have a connection with a student, and you keep looking at your iPhone or the numbers, or you know, there's definitely a disconnect. Um, so right. uh, one of the challenges. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm teaching outside now with a long starter. Mm-hmm. Is is that I stay present to my to my student, and and that is super important to me. Um, that's more important than, than looking at numbers on every shot. Um, there's definitely something that could be said for, you know, also looking at a swing, not, not videotaping right. it, but just, just right. looking at it. So, yeah, and you I, know, as an instructor, you're using everything you have. You know, you're always using your full experience, your, your, all your expertise, all your experience to, to, to help the person in front of you. And, um, you know, that is, and ultimately to have a better experience playing golf. Um, in golf, just like you say, it's not just about the swing, you know. Um, I, I firmly believe, like, you know, golf is a game of skill, but it's not just a techni- technical skill. It's, it's also about, you know, a mental game. And I think you talked about that earlier on the show tonight, right. uh, mm-hmm. about, you know, you can change and, and have a better game by not changing your swing at all. And I think that's absolutely true. But what about for a player who struggles every time they play to hit the fairway off the tee. You're right, that exactly. Is, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if you have a superior mental game if you're patient, if you are if you right. are relaxed. <laughs> it doesn't matter. 
you know, like, and I, I hear this a lot, oh, game, you know, golf is 90% mental, you know. Well, right. the truth is that the game is only 90% mental if you have some skill. Um, right, exactly. And, and skill can always be developed. That's that's where, you know, that's where our, our job is, is mostly. Uh, it's also, you know, if I look at my lesson today uh, with this, my this mini tour player, we had, we probably hit balls for 10% of our time together, and then we talked for 90. <laughs> so, right. uh There's definitely, you know, there's definitely that. But most of the time, you know, we're always looking to develop some, the skills to, to play this game. And uh, it's um, it's not bowling. Um, and I think um, no offense to those great bowlers out there, but, yeah, it's uh, golf is just so exciting because it has so many different aspects to it. It has shifting, it has bumper shots the driving, has the putting, and there's always something to to improve on and, and work on and and have fun with, you know. And that's that's what's so great about golf. Right, and I think there has to be a, sort of a natural progression. I think you know, especially for for you know younger students that are just taking up the game, I think they have to develop that skill level first. I mean, you know, there's not much point in in teaching um, you know somebody's strategy or course management if they can't. Uh, or don't understand, you know, the, the functionality of the golf swing, and they don't ha- understand the basics of the grip and the stance and the posture. I mean, there has to be a progression. So I think, you know, earlier on when you're first teaching somebody, I mean, you want to focus more on the skill sets and developing those, uh, you know, good repetitive uh, skill sets early on, and then sort of progress into to a course management and more of the mental side. I think some of the problems is you know, you've got players, this is the thing that always kills me, and this is where I think sometimes instructors fall a little bit short, and that's certainly not not a blanketed statement, but, you know, you might have somebody that has, like the older gentleman that you were talking about, um, maybe has one minor issue, but will come to an instructor, and, you know, they're basically remapping his gene, uh, you know, his genealogy, if you will, and he comes out worse off than what he was coming in, and it really, like you said, putting him on the uh, the monitor resolved that problem very quickly. Now he's a happy camper and he's going out there. You didn't have to re, you know, change his entire swing. You made a few minor adjustments based on the information you were given. And I think it's the same thing with, with some of the younger junior players coming up is, you know, we need to work with them uh, in developing that skill set. And then the mental side comes into it at that point um, and not the other way around. I mean, you can teach somebody how to uh, navigate around the course, but if they don't have a reasonable skill set, they're still going to be frustrated and have difficult challenges. And I think this is really what you're, you're trying to, the point you're trying to get across, correct? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and and this is where, you know, it it takes some time, you know, it's not just, um, again, the, the equipment and the technology is out there really to help us as instructors to be able to make better decisions that will affect the outcome of our students' results. And uh, again, it's not about impressing them with numbers and it's not about, you know, fancy words and things like that. It's about understanding um, the information that we can gather through this technology and making an informed decision to be able to go back to the student and saying, hey, your club face was open 23 degrees. Here's what we have to do to make adjustments. So now you're more informed as an instructor. You're able to articulate that information to your student and he or she is going to benefit long-term. Um, so you're right. 90% uh, of the game is mental, but there has to be a reasonable skill set involved as well for that really to come in play. Um, you mentioned earlier, Rebecca, that you um, consider yourself a feel player. 
Um, define what you mean by a feel player. Uh, and some people might argue and say that uh, feel doesn't really matter. Why do you feel that that feel is important, uh, in, at least in your game? And, and uh-huh. uh, you know, why are some people feel and some people not? Um, I think everybody feels. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if I touched your hand or mm-hmm. somebody touched your hand, you would certainly feel it. Um, hopefully, anyways. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, uh, you know, some players say that they're, you know, they learn more by, let's say, visual uh, visual feedback or or auditory feedback, um, and some um, have a better learning experience if they uh, they get a feel for something. Um, right. And, and I think my argument is that if you're playing golf, you are feeling. You must. Mm-hmm. Um, right. There, there, there's something there um, that helps you get around the course to understand how hard you need to hit that chip shot, how hard you need to hit the putt. Uh, that's feel. Um, some have more of it. Some have maybe a little less of it or, or it's not developed yet. Um, so I think feel is an in- integral part of of golf. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think feel is closely related to, to awareness. Um and I think in my lessons or in, in my coaching, I my underlying ob- objective is to help develop a, more awareness. And if the technology and the video and the body track can, can do some of those things, you know, great. Um, I certainly got a lot of new awareness when I started using um, the TrackMan uh, about my own swing and my own game. And right. now I understand my patterns so much more. So if I, at my level, at a, at a professional playing level, can can have such a revelation, uh, I know that <clears throat> that others can too, uh, and not just um, you know players who are a single digit handicap. It can it can benefit a wide spectrum of, of players. Uh, perhaps not you know the beginner player in the first lesson. But right. certainly, you know, maybe starting in the fifth lesson. Um, and I, I'm going to say it that early because um, if that, maybe you're just working on club face at the start. And club face is, is a pretty big, big deal. If you can feel the club face and, and put a feel to what the club face is doing, um, you'll, you'll help, it will help you develop um, that sensation, what, what that is very quickly. And, and at first when you take a golf club in your hand, and I can I can do this because I can do it left-handed because that's where my awareness isn't very good. Um, and if I, I can start feeling the club face and, and relate to what it feels like based on the feedback on, on a launch monitor, then I, I know I can improve faster. Right. Now, so an interesting point that I wanted to, to make um because you had you'd mentioned this in some of your notes, um, uh, of course, being an LPGA um, teacher professional, and and uh, you were also, uh, or also the secretary of the LPGA Western uh, section. But you actually did, uh, starting last year, uh, did some TrackMan seminars uh, for that section, mm-hmm. and as a result, uh, you know many of the other professionals in their clubs are starting to make uh, 
some investments as well in that technology. So obviously they're seeing the benefits like you are. Um, is that something that we need to see more of um, exchanging information? You know, it, certainly we're all competitive to a certain degree um, in our own fields, but um, is it something that we need to be communicating more and more throughout the industry with one another? And I know the LPJ does a great job in, in, in helping one another, uh, you know, sort of elevate their, and I'm talking about the teaching professionals now. Um, mm-hmm. But is this part of the reason why you wanted to do that was to share that information uh, with your fellow professionals to say, hey, this is an area that you need to, to be more involved in. It's going to help you not only for your own games, but it's going to help you uh, working with your students. Is this one of the reasons why you wanted to to pursue that? Yeah, uh, it was. I wanted to share some of the things that I had learned. Um, I think um, that could benefit others in terms of learning about ball flight. Um, there's been a lot of changes uh, based on trackman technology um, and in the swing and what, what creates uh, what kind of ball flight. So now we have some measurements. There's um, some arguments of um, the ball flight laws, if you will. Uh, right. When I grew up, um, I was taught that what my swing path was doing was, um, you know, that was the master of where my ball was going. Um, right. Turns out that was that's not quite right. <laughs> um, <laughs> the club face is more important. <laughs> Shocker. Right. Um, but uh, you know, there's been some argument about that, and it's it's, it's interesting um, to see. And, and once you start to kind of share that it, that information and that knowledge, um, um, you know, I think that's. Uh, that's great. I think uh, sharing information is is really great. Why not? I I don't understand why you should hold on to it yourself and when something can benefit others um, in terms of their teaching. And, um, you know, I had a fellow professional come down and and uh, asking me questions about TrackMan, and, you know, I, I welcome that. If anyone has questions that they think I can help them with, um, if they're new to TrackMan or just bought a, a unit, uh, I'm more than happy to to be a resource. Um, it's it's fun, you know. I I love it. I think um, I'm not saying that everybody um, want to do that or go that route, but uh, clubs are even making that investment. Um, at Oakmont, they they actually bought a, a flight scope for our indoor lab there. Right. Um, so that's really exciting, and um, I know other places as well that that are doing making that investment, and other LPJ professionals also that are um, making an investment uh, to get a launch monitor, um, because it it just makes a whole lot of sense. I think that's where the <laughs> um, well, I that's think where instruction is going, and um, yeah, the more I, I think you right. You think you do have to to change with the times, you know, as an example, you know, really a lot of these things that you're talking about are really tools of the trade. And you certainly don't necessarily, I mean, you know, one of the the things, and I'm I'm sure you've been down to the PJ merchandising show in in Orlando before, and, you know, there's always something new and exciting coming out every year. And you certainly can't as a professional go out and and grapple onto everything. Uh, I mean, you'd be in the poorhouse if you did, but um, but there is a lot of general technology that's out there that's sort of mainstream, that becomes mainstream uh, at some point. And it is 
certainly important to to have uh, access to that technology and it may be in stages depending on where you are in, in your instruction um, and the facility you're with um, it, sometimes it takes a little extra convincing that hey it's worth the investment because let's be honest some of this technology is is not uh, is not always cheap um, but mm-hmm. if if you look at the um, you know what you're getting out of it and it's not just the ROI I mean it, you know clubs obviously look at you know what's the return on investment what's the bottom line that sort of thing but it's also what is it going to do um, for the level of instruction that they have to offer obviously the higher level of instruction they're able to offer and and benefit with results um, they're going to attract more clientele which you know adds to other areas of the club as well so um, there's definitely big advantages of that um, I want to move away from, if we can, from technology, because I know that one of the other things that you want to talk about is the retreat, because there's a retreat coming up here uh, in just literally uh, less than, what, a couple of weeks. So talk about that, and uh, and I think you have an offer uh, as well uh, for that retreat. So talk a little bit about the retreat, what's involved, what role you're playing, and when exactly is it taking place and where. Yes. So uh, so one of the other things that I'm passionate about is to get more women to be involved in golf because uh, it's a great game. Um, and um, I think a lot of women shy away from playing the game because uh, they feel they don't have the skill uh, or the know-how. So, um, again, be the change you want to see. So um, we're putting up on our third retreat, uh, myself and Davey Lino Simran. Uh, we're leading a retreat coming up in Napa Valley. Uh, here in Northern California, and uh, we're going to be at Chardonnay Golf Course uh, on April 30th and uh, May 1st. It's a Saturday and Sunday, and the first day we're going to focus on short games. Um, so we're um, we're going to go over um, uh, short shots, chipping, putting, um, bunkers um, inside 100 yards to the green, um, right, and then. In the morning, we, we kind of go over all the, the skill set, and then in the afternoon, we go on the course, and you um, the participants will get on-course coaching and um, interruptions in their patterns on the golf course in terms of, okay, well, here's the shot. You know, you know how, how do you plan this shot? And in real-life real situations, like what really happens on the, on the course and, and how are we going to master this type of shot? Um, what, what's our best bet here? So um, that's always so fun. Um, I love being on the course. That's something I've been doing um, a lot um, since I started teaching. Um, and it's something that I think is, you know, our feedback on our treats has always been that, you know, the on-course coaching is, is everybody's favorite part um, because it's it's rare that you get to be on the course with a pro. So right. um, that is um, – that is really, really fun. Uh, the second day is focused on the long game. Uh, so we talk about full swing irons, fairway and tee shots in the morning. Uh, we'll, um, I actually will bring out my trackman then. Um, we'll talk a little <laughs> bit about uh, how, to, you know, how to use that. We'll probably talk a little bit about video technology. Um, we don't go too in-depth here, but, you know, depending right. on, um, on you know, the level of interest, and, and we always tailor our uh, instruction to the group. So um, we also go over, um, you know, golf fitness warm-ups and, and some exercises that uh, one can do to kind of get ready for golf. Um, and we talk about, you know, swing sequencing and um, and lower body power as well. So, 
Um, that's um, that's the focus for the second day, and then again in the afternoon we'll go out and and work on the course. And again, you'll get real real life feedback on on what's happening. And um, uh, you know, I I I play I play with each group that's coming out, and um, we do different scenarios um, and um, um, and work to reinforce what we've talked about in the morning. So. Um, yeah, great fun. Well, I, I like the fact, uh, really, three things. Uh, number one, I, I'm, I'm glad that you and, and Jamie and, and that are are really focusing on trying to get more women to play. I think, you know, women want to get out and have fun too. And, and golf, um, as, as challenging as it can be at times, um, under the right circumstances, can be a lot of fun for anybody. Um, and, and that's really what we want to try to do in the golf industry right now. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I do this program and have so many great talented professionals joining me here is really to, you know, not just go through how to fix this and how to fix that, but to explain that, you know, with the, with the right tools and with the right attitudes, um, you know, you can go out and, and make fun of whether you're shooting, you know, a par or whether, whether you're shooting 105, you can still have fun at this, at this game. And depending on, on how much effort you're willing to put into it is going to dictate, you know, what level you're going to be playing at. But you can still even a, a 30 handicapper can go out and have a lot of fun. And the other thing that I like about the retreat that you're doing um, as well with, with you and, and Jamie is the fact that you're you're not just sort of sitting in a, in a classroom environment or, or that sort of thing or in a, you know, a round table, so to speak. You're getting out on the course, as you said, in real uh, time situations and explain to them. So there's a little course management involved as well. It's not just talking about how to swing and hit and, and so on and so forth. Um, there's, there's health, uh, you know, factors involved, how to, you know, prepare properly uh, before a round, how to, to get the best out of exercise without, you know, um, it's not about bulking up in that, but it's about really uh, helping your flexibility in other areas that I know that you guys work with. Um, but getting yourself prepared um, before we even, you know, get up to the first tee. And then, you know, on the, that real course um, situation is giving people a little bit of um, course management, if you will, and understanding why um, they need to do certain things and under what conditions. So, you know, it, it sort of encapsulates, uh, you know, really the whole area of golf. And I like that, that you know, ladies have been doing this now, and this is your third retreat, as you said, and obviously – um, they've been successful because you keep uh, you keep adding more, and I'm still waiting for my invite uh, to one of these retreats. <laughs> um, especially since you always, you know, the other thing I and I said I think I said this the last time that you and Jamie were on here is I noticed that you always there seems to be a wine component somewhere in this retreat. You know, <laughs> Napa Valley and and uh, Chardonnay Golf Club. I mean, there seems to be that wine component. So obviously, it sounds like you have a lot of fun. Uh, it's not just all, you know, golf and instruction and things like that. There's a lot of uh, a fun component to it as well. So, um, for those yeah, on the, on the, yeah, <laughs> on the Saturday night, I always like to pick a restaurant for us to go to and, um, you know, the more the merrier. Um, so right. that invite is, uh, is, is coming out. Uh, so I, I love food and wine. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's part of, uh, <laughs> Well, you know I'm what? A huge, I'm a huge yelper, and uh, I love finding new restaurants and 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 trying trying new food. So I'm uh, that's part of what I love to, to provide. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention too is that you know I, when I started playing golf, I it was a social game to me. I played with my family and my sister, my my dad and my sister, right. and um, I think you know most people I think were 
you kind of play golf, but you want to play at least to a level where you can have fun socially. Mm-hmm. Because I think once what I've noticed, and this is what I've learned over the years, is that if if the player really really struggles with the game, it's 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 hard to get that enjoyment and and sort of sure. ha- have it be sort of easy and relaxing to play mm-hmm. golf versus oh I'm I don't have the skill and I know it and and you know the self talk just kind of goes through the roof where oh I suck at this why am I out here I'm not enjoying this um, just because I'm you know that these women are not quite at the level where they want to be. Um, and, uh, you know, if we can kind of help provide some of the skills so that they can go out and play golf with their, um, you know, their significant others, um, friends and family. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, because I think, you know, a lot of times in, in our busy world, <laughs> right. uh, golf is sort of the antidote to that. You know, it's a, it's a great way to spend an afternoon with your friend or your family. Um, having conversations that wouldn't take place otherwise, uh, getting to know someone in a, in a different way that you wouldn't otherwise. And um, golf has certainly been that for me, and and uh, I would well, I would love to have um, have that be the same for for others. So um, that is uh, <laughs> I'm probably getting a little personal missiony here, but uh, uh, you know no. that's my that's my goal to to do these schools, and um, and I love it. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. I I love hanging out with uh, people who love golf, you know, and and want to get uh, and want to get better um, at, at it. <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, that's exactly right. And that and as I said earlier, that a uh, few moments ago, that's that's why I do this show. Is you know I enjoy it as well. It's not just the teaching aspect, but it's just I enjoy the conversation and I enjoy helping other people. Uh, in whatever area, and, and as I've said many times, Rebecca, you know, golf mimics life in so many ways, uh, more than what the, what the average person really understands. And there's many, many life lessons that can be taken away from the golf course. And it is a great social, uh, in my opinion, it's much better than social media because it may not be as fast, um, but it's it's much more personable, and you get to know people, and and it's a great, it's become a great business tool. Um, obviously, you know, um, it started that way primarily with men for, for years, but more business women now are starting to understand the advantages that, that uh, getting involved in golf, what it can do for their business as well. It, great for, you know, meeting prospective clients and so forth. Um, you have an offer. Let, let's get the offer out there uh, before we run out of time uh, for this upcoming retreat. So uh, I'll, I'll give the floor to you. Yes. So we have an early bird offer. Um, and uh, if you go to the website, it's uh, com, and I'll spell that out. It's R-E-D-E-C-K-A-H-E-I-N-N-E-R-T.com. And um, click on the link, and the, the name of the retreat is called Raise Your Game. Um, and you can find all the information there. The program cost and registration is $5.99 for the two full days of instruction, uh, lunch, and um, range balls and carts and green fee and, and all such things, snacks are in, included in that. Uh, we do have an early bird special. It's uh, $30 off, and you just use the, co- the code is BIRD at checkout. 
Um, there's Perfect. also lodging available um, at the American Double Tree Hotel. Um, there's a link also on the website if, if somebody wants to um, um, stay there. It's a, it's a nice hotel with a with a great breakfast. <laughs> and I'm all about that's, that. <laughs> yeah, and that's just in case you you go out uh, in on the Saturday evening and maybe have a little bit too much enjoyment. You want to. Uh, not have to worry about getting back on the road and, and traveling too far. So that's a good idea. I agree with that. Um, it, you know, I, I want to wish both yourself and obviously Jamie and, and others that are involved in this and also to the people um, that are participating in this, you know, all the success in the world with these retreats. Because I think, um, you know, this is really how the game is going to grow. Um, you know, you can put out all the advertisements you want on on uh you know at your golf course to get people to come and play but um and i would say especially in the area of women there's still an apprehension by a lot of women they're very intimidated um you know i'm sure you can attest to this rebecca there's still a lot of courses out there that women feel very intimidated um by going into the pro shops because there aren't you know a lot of women around they're you know they're they're um you know having many eyes sort of glaring at them as they're walking through the door and they're not sure you know, maybe they haven't played very much golf. They don't know that much about it, and it's not always the most inviting environment. So this is something that we want to change in the industry. Is we want everybody to come into the doors and, and be welcomed. And your retreat is is really acting as a stepping stone um, because you know not only will they want to go out after and have some fun with friends and things like maybe at their local public course, but some of these people that may not currently be involved or have a membership may want to join a, a club in their local area that they had thought about, but maybe were a little bit unsure. Uh, this is going to help build a little confidence for them and know that they can go out there and it doesn't matter whether they shoot, you know, par under par or, you know, uh, as I said earlier, a 30 handicap, um, they're going to go out and they're going to have fun. And they're going to understand the game a little bit better for some, you know, for some professionals who, who are able to, to work with them like yourselves and, and Jamie and um, they're going to be able to take that information and enrich their lives. And that's really what, what uh, this is all about. So, um, again, kudos to, to you and Jamie and, and the others for, uh, for putting this together. Yeah, I think uh, this is just a continuation of, of what I used to do when I, when I stopped, stopped playing uh, professionally. And uh, I was working at a country club at a time, and I started a, a three-hole group. Uh, mm-hmm. And the three-hole group was for um, for women golfers who were reluctant to start uh, joining the ladies' groups. Um, there was a nine-hole group and an 18-hole group at this at this course, and uh, um, I had so many ladies go through this program and, and join the nine-hole group and the 18-hole group, and they had never had so many new members um, right. as when when I was running this program, and it was hugely. I can just tell you that if if anybody has a chance to start a program like that, um, you know, go out and, and play with these ladies, kind of help them out a little bit on the course, play a scramble, make it really fun and, mm-hmm. and easy. And, and uh, you know, you cover a little bit of rules as it comes up and you cover a little bit of, you know, club selection and where to drive the cart and all of that good stuff. You know, it makes a huge difference. And, uh, uh, and I still, to this day, have these ladies uh, come up to me, and when I see them, uh, you know, random events around the Bay Area, to come up and thank <laughs> me and say, hey, you know, thanks so much for getting me started, and, you know, I still play, and I, I just had my first uh, birdie, or, <laughs> uh, right. you know, and, and, and all this this great stuff that that happened, and, and getting, involved, getting them involved in, in the golf, and and also, you know, getting out there and having a having a, a social group and people to hang out with, and um, it's 
it's really tremendous. So um, I, this is just a continuation of that, and I'm thankful and happy to be doing it, and, and I look forward to it. Well, as I said, um, you know, I, I wish you and, and Jamie and, and uh, others uh, a lot of success with this uh, retreat. I think it's a great idea, and you're certainly um, – I know it's just going to continue to build momentum as, as the word gets out, and I'm always happy to – uh, to support you guys, so you know you have an open invitation to come back anytime and and uh, not only talk golf but to um, talk about the retreats and and let people know. So, um, Rebecca, thank you very much for joining me this evening on Golf Talk Live. Unfortunately, our, our time's uh, just about up, but uh, I want to thank you and and wish you luck. And I will uh, read out the uh, the offer one more time here um, as I close out the program. So, uh, for those of you that are interested uh, in attending the retreat, there's still some availability. You can go to Rebecca Heinmert. Dot com and that's r e b e c k a h e i n m e r t dot com of course the www in front and uh, they're offering an early bird uh, special if you will for the retreat which is uh, good until April fifteenth which is tomorrow uh, go there and um, click on the uh, retreat link and uh, link excuse me and uh, if you type in the early bird code which is bird itself b i r d uh, at checkout, uh, you receive a discount, uh, an early bird discount. So make sure that you do that. And uh, again, Rebecca, thank you very much for joining me on Golf Talk Live. And uh, I believe you're going to be joining me. Uh, I think you're coming back on some of the uh, Coach's Corner panels discussions, I believe, you've got uh, in the mix as well. Um, and if not, I'm going to get you on for sure. But thank you for, for joining me tonight. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Always Good a luck pleasure. With the- well, thank you, Rebecca. Uh, good luck with it, and say hello to Jamie for me, and uh, I will have you uh, ladies back on again uh, uh, before too long. All right. Sounds great. Thanks again. All right. You're welcome, Rebecca. Good night. Bye. Okay, that was my very special guest, uh, Rebecca Heinmert. Uh, she's a Class A uh, LPJ teacher professional and uh, works out at the Oakmont Golf Course in Santa Rosa, California. And uh, you can get more information on her and about the retreat by going to www.rebeccaheinmert.com. Uh, learn about the treat, uh, retreat excuse me, coming up here at the end of the month. And uh, also uh, type in the uh, early bird code. Uh, it's good until tomorrow. Uh, and it's uh, B-I-R-D, the word bird, uh, in the uh, coupon code at the time of checkout and receive a discount uh, Uh, for advanced uh, purchase of the retreat. But uh, it's a great opportunity, and I strongly suggest uh, that you take advantage. Both Jamie and and Rebecca are are two great uh, professionals and uh, two great uh, people in general, and uh, very glad to have them on the program. And don't forget, for those of you, uh, I mentioned earlier about the uh, Golf Talk Live Major Champion Couples Contest, Uh, two great evenings, bed and breakfast, one at the Hacienda uh, Hotel in Old Town, San Diego, uh, golf for two at Salt Creek uh, golf club and the second night at uh, bed and breakfast at the palm mountain hotel and spa and golf for two at the encina golf club it's a, a couples contest and uh, also lunch at the old town tequila factory hosted by uh, none other than my good friend uh, byron casper who is an international pga member and son of legendary billy casper and uh, also thrown in there as well is uh, a copy of billy casper's uh, last book the big three and me uh, total value of the prize is in excess of $1,000. So um, make sure you do that. Submit your, your answers to the upcoming three remaining majors, uh, U.S., British Open, and the PGA Championship, who you think is going to win. Send your submission to uh, golftalklivecontest at gmail.com. 
Make sure you include all your contact information, and we'll do a draw, Byron and I, the week following, the Thursday following the PGA Championship, we'll announce the uh, winner of the draw. So make sure you do that. On behalf of myself, uh, thank you very much to all the listeners uh, for the opportunity to come to you worldwide, uh, and thank you for faithfully uh, tuning into Golf Talk Live each and uh, every week. And thank you to some of the sponsors and supporters of the program, Mr. Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide, Meredith Kirk uh, from Meredith Kirk Golf, and uh, Nikki and Tiffany Litherland. Thank you for all of your help in spreading the word. Mr. Bernie Pinder from com, And, of course, Sean Kelly from LinkedGolfers.com. And, of course, my good friend, Mr. Peter Doyle from Doyle Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Um, thank you, everybody. Thank you to my special guests on the Coach's pan, uh, Corner panel and to my uh, special premium guest tonight, Rebecca Heinmert. Thank you for joining me, Rebecca. And I will see you guys next Thursday right here at 6 p.m. Central, right here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody and have a great week.